yes, we love the gospel. Yes, we want to be gospel people. We want to be gospel-centered, et cetera, et cetera. However, uh, be careful here because um, you could be in danger of um, so basing what matters uh, on what you experience or what you receive or how you're going to be blessed that you start to ignore or discard uh, the deep things of God that actually are important regardless of whether you like them or not. <laughs> um, in other words, it used to be the case that, and you see this with the, the pastoral motivation of so many of the, the church fathers, it used to be the case that as they talked to their, um, their church members, they often gave them the impression, if they didn't say it explicitly, they assumed this much, that contemplating God in and of itself is worth your life. That itself has everything to do uh, with why you exist, with your sanctification. And, uh, well, I would put it this way, if, if that uh, doesn't interest you, I think that you're going to have a very hard time in heaven. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine an associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast. My name is Sam Parkinson. I'm not the host that you're typically used to hearing. I'm one of the editors at Credo Magazine and a PhD student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of the pastors at Emmaus Church in North Kansas City, and I get the joy of sitting in the interviewer's chair today to uh, interview Dr. Matthew Barrett, who you're used to hearing on this podcast. So, Dr. Barrett, welcome to your own show. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Yeah, thanks for letting me uh, sit in this chair. And we're here today to talk about um, your new book, um, Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the second of several episodes that we're going to have um, talking about this uh, particular book. We have a foreword um, by Scott Swain and all sorts of endorsements from other reputable scholars. It's published with Baker Academic, and um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it today. So, um, so yeah, I'm. Uh, do you have anything that you want to say before we jump straight into it? No, thank you for uh, coming on my own podcast mm. to talk about uh, simply Trinity. I've been. Uh, waiting a long time to talk about this book. It's been uh, the Trinity Doctrine of the Trinity has been something I've been thinking about, of course, for a long time. But over the last several years, in particular, and um, Baker was, you know, I published uh, None Greater: The Undomesticated Attributes of God uh, two years ago, and they were uh, just very generous to say, "Hey, come back and uh, write a write another book this time on the, the Doctrine of the Trinity." You can probably tell from the subtitle, uh, this time, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, Spirit. There's a bit of a theme going, but I'm sure mm. we'll get into that soon enough. Is this somewhat of a trilogy we're being introduced to? Or? We'll, we'll see. We'll okay. see. It's, uh, it's a mystery still, So, okay. uh, but you never know. If, uh, if I have enough energy, um, we, you know, I've written one on attributes, now Trinity. We'll see if I uh, have enough energy to, to go the full distance and, and talk about providence. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we are ready. 
Um, okay, well, I just want to jump straight into it, and I'd, I'd like to start um, first just by talking a little bit about the heart of this book. So um, I, I was uh, had the privilege of reading it when you were still in the process of, of working through it, and then I have my advanced copy as well, and um, just really enjoyed reading through it. And as I read through it, I sensed um, a deep pastoral concern. Um, it's not a polemical book. It's not, um, strictly speaking, a book where you are setting out to um, critique any particular position or person. Um, so you're wanting to actually put forward something constructive. You're, you're wanting to propose um, a biblical, orthodox, classic uh, conception of the Trinity. And yet you seem to be concerned about a certain trend, specifically within the broad evangelical stream of Christianity of which you and I are a part. And uh, this trend is to pursue theological contemplation with um, what seems to be a, a less than helpful methodology. So I'd like for you to start just to, to uh, explain to our listeners about your concern here and just generally your heart in, in writing this book. Yeah, many years ago, I feel like I'm getting old saying it this way, but many years ago when I was uh, way back in college and uh, starting off with my own theological journey, of course, I you know, was very uh, eager to jump into theological works and uh, very grateful in so many ways for, for those who introduced me to different theologians, past and present. One thing I noticed, though, was as I started really at the, at the very beginning, as I started off reading systematic theologies written in the past uh, three decades, I noticed that there was something missing. Um, you think, for example, of two, uh, two systematic theologies that have been around now for some time, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and then Miller Erickson. Hmm. When I was first starting out, these were the two systematic theologies. Now there's more, but at the time, these were really it, uh, the, only, the, the two contemporary systematic theologies. And the more I studied the Doctrine of the Trinity, the more I noticed something's missing here. Mm. Uh, part of it was the approach that was taken, a very formulaic approach. Uh, you, you more or less collected certain proof texts to show God is one and then to show the deity of each person's. At some point, you had to make that leap between those proof texts and uh, theological and historical language of one person, or I'm sorry, one essence and three persons, that sort of thing, hmm. and and drew some type of conclusion. Uh, one of so the approach itself was a bit surprising because when I thought through how I came to know the Trinity, it was very much well, it was more organic than that. As I read the Bible and learned the gospel, uh, this came to me in a Trinitarian fashion. Uh, the gospel mm. is just Trinitarian through and through, which, uh, you know, as I talk about in my book, that of course points back to to something even uh, something significant about who this Triune God is apart from us uh, in eternity uh, in the imminent life of God. But that aside, uh, I also noticed that uh, a key doctrine like eternal generation was just missing. Hmm. It wasn't talked about. When it was talked about, uh, it was approached in a bit of a dismissive way or or at least with some high suspicions towards it. 
And that said something to me because I realized that, wait a minute, the, this doctrine that the church has held dear for thousands of years and, uh, well, of course, in the fourth century, uh, many of the fathers put their lives on the line to uh, defend this doctrine of eternal generation was something uh, missing from contemporary mm-hmm. systematics and uh, sometimes just laughed out of the room. Uh, the more I study the Trinity, the Trinity, the more I realize actually the situation is even worse than that hmm. uh, because not only have we neglected or ignored or dismissed certain doc- Trinitarian doctrines, but we've shifted. Uh, I would say we've even drifted. Uh, we've drifted away from classical uh, Nicene, here I'm referring to the Council of Nicaea, descriptions of the Trinity into uh, what is today, uh, in the, came really in the 20th century, came to great influence, which was a social doctrine of the Trinity. We can get to that later. Mm. And with that social understanding of the Trinity, a person's uh, is sometimes their own centers of consciousness and will. Um, there alongside of it really was an agenda. And mm. This agenda was then to use the Trinity, some, I would argue, even manipulate the Trinity, you know, by way of critique, but use or manipulate the Trinity for just countless social agendas, um, more than you can imagine. So at the beginning of my book, as we, you know, talk about in uh, the last episode, uh, the Trinity was just manipulated for just about every social agenda under the sun, whether it was political uh, whether it was more theological or ecclesiastical, or whether it was related to gender, on and on and on. So all that to say, you know, it's a long answer to your question, but all that to say, yes, I think there's a pastoral concern at the heart of my book. As I mm-hmm. wrote it, I wanted to give a constructive uh, presentation of the Trinity to reintroduce the church to key, uh, really key uh, vocabulary, key uh, terms and concepts that can help us regain the Orthodox Doctrine of the Trinity. But as uh, I was writing this book, I couldn't help but reflect on my own journey and think we've drifted so much mm. that uh, actually I think there's a danger here. And for that reason, uh, there there are points in the book that can't help but be polemical because there's so much at stake. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense and really resonates with my own uh, pastoral experience when I'm talking to uh, church members about the Trinity, and um, especially even when I'm talking with students. So um, I've had uh, the chance to to teach a couple of classes here, and uh, thinking specifically of chapter 5. So in chapter 5, you discuss God's oneness and his threeness. And in my experience, when I'm teaching um, through Christian Doctrine 1, as you know, we, we have to to deal with uh, the attributes of God, um, the attributes that you've written so well on in uh, your previous book, None Greater. And um, of course, one of the first doctrines you have to talk about is the doctrine of divine simplicity, that God is not composed of parts or passions, but that he's one, that God is his attributes, that he is pure act. And inevitably, whenever I'm talking about this doctrine to students or to church members, um, the first question that comes up, of course, is, well, what about the Trinity, though? <laughs> you know, like I, I, it would seem to many people that our uh, doctrine of divine simplicity has to be thrown out because God is not um, simple. God is one. Isn't he composed of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So doesn't that mean that Christians should reject the doctrine of divine simplicity as incompatible with our 
faith and worship. But you obviously don't agree. You argue against that in your book. So tell us why. Um, tell us why we we shouldn't uh, pit the doctrine of divine simplicity up against the Trinity. Yeah, your experience there it has been mine as well. I think the the very question, the very doubt, right? It's revealing because it shows. Well, even beyond our understanding of the Trinity, we we don't have in place a a, a classical, uh, biblical even a doctrine of God, and uh, where uh, something like divine simplicity would actually play a significant, significant. Well, sorry for the pun, but a significant part in mm-hmm. our understanding of who this God is. The, like you said, divine simplicity is key when we're talking about the attributes of God. Because we're not saying, for example, that God's essence is one thing and then his attributes are another thing. We're, we're not saying that even the different attributes are different parts that, that somehow compose them as if they add up uh, to the essence as a whole. Uh, this, would, this would be disastrous. Uh, God would be divided in and of himself. And uh, the consequences would be, well, they would, we, we would no longer have a Christian doctrine of God anymore. Uh, this is so key because when we talk about monotheism and the basic biblical affirmation that God is one, we're not merely saying, I hope we're not merely saying that there is only one God as opposed to many gods, but we're saying God is one, mm. is one. When we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, this divine simplicity doesn't disappear all of a sudden. It's mm. not as if, well, simplicity was really crucial when we're talking about the attributes of God and his perfections, but now with the Trinity, it, doesn't, it actually works against the Trinity. I argue, and here, of course, this is nothing new with me. This is, I'm standing on the shoulders of, of the great tradition, that dream, dream team that's come before us, but I argue that, well, if we think of the persons as in, in some way in conflict with divine simplicity, then we've actually mis, either misunderstood simplicity or mm-hmm. misunderstood what it means for Father, Son, Spirit, what, what it means for them to be persons, mm. or we've misunderstood both, uh, mm. which, which mm. that too happens. When we refer to the persons of the Trinity, we have to remember they are persons, not parts. Mm. That is sometimes difficult for us to understand, but uh, a plurality of persons is not the same thing as a plurality of parts. Mm. Uh, I can't help but think of... Uh, the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus in particular, he has this, I, I have to quote it because he has this great sentence where he talks about how do we understand monotheism in view of our doctrine of the Trinity? And he says, monotheism with its single governing principle is what we value, not monotheism defined as the sovereignty of a single person, but the single rule produced by equality of nature harmony of will, and notice there he says will singular, Mm. not plural, identity of action and the convergence toward their source of what springs from unity, none of which is possible in the case of of created nature. And then he says the result is that though there is numerical distinction, there is no division in the substance. All Mm. that to say when we are talking about the Trinity, we sometimes make distinctions which are crucial. We distinguish, for example, between essence and person, and we can get more into that later. But we have to remember that 
when we make these distinctions, it's not as if uh, the, we're divorcing these two things, as if these are two separate things. You know, some, something called an essence, mm. and uh, that has nothing really to do with the persons. Uh, as uh, you know, I introduced in the first episode, uh, that Trinitarian language becomes so important. No, the, the one essence has three modes of subsistence. Mm. Or we could say that the persons uh, in in this scheme, then, the persons then are subsistences of the self-same essence. Hmm. So we may be making that distinction, but in no way do we want to divorce um, divorce the two of them. Anyway, I, I'll let you, you uh, fill in here with maybe uh, some of your own experience, but um, there's so much we could say here in terms of the way we use analogies, right. for example— and uh, some of the, the Trinitarian errors we make if we reject divine simplicity. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think um, there's all sorts of uh, accidental Trinitarian errors that people stumble into. Um, it's, it's an interesting time where I, I think books like Simply Trinity and None Greater are really helpful to try to um, increase people's biblical and theological literacy because mm. there were previous times in church history where um, in order to be a heretic, you had to be one on purpose. And now it's, it's just people stumble into it. Yeah. And I, I yeah. want to ask you about some Trinitarian um, heresies. But before I do that, you, um, your discussion on persons um, mm. was, was so interesting. And I, I agree with you that um, when you say uh, that we um, pit uh, the Trinity and the doctrine of divine simplicity together when we misunderstand either uh, the one undivided essence of the Trinity, or what we mean by person, and that that to me seems to be a major stumbling block for a lot of people. Mm. Where you know, if I if I think of a community of persons, um, it's very easy for me to think one part. Um, you know, I'm one part of uh, of our elder team. You know, I'm mm. I'm one part, and it's divided up among several parts, and so. Um, but but you seem to indicate that there's a distinction between the way that we use the word person and the way that the church fathers used that language of of person. So what is the difference, and why do you think the distinction is so crucial for us? Yes, uh, this is so, so important. In the last century, really, with the rise of social Trinitarianism, and, you know, social Trinitarianism is diverse, but, you know, for the sake of our conversation, I think there are some key themes of continuity that we can pin it to the wall at least. With the rise of social Trinitarianism, there is both at the academic level and then certainly at the popular level, just this um, habit, a bad habit I would say, where when we talk about the Trinity, we just um, assume that the Trinity is a type of society uh, that is not all that different from societies in this world, whether they be, well, human societies, whether they be smaller types of societies like uh, a family, um, a church, or, you know, an organization, whatever it be, that's a very dangerous assumption, of course, because in our human societies, we, well, we are persons in a way that, like you just mentioned, we are individuals, we have uh, separate wills, separate centers of consciousness. Mm. Uh, if there is unity, uh, it's it's there may be unity, but it's not um, it's not in the sense of a unity of uh, essence, like we we're talking about with God. 
with the triune God. Rather, there's a cooperation, a, a cooperation of wills, for example, in which we decide, okay, we are going to get along. Mm. Um, even when we talk about the word person in our society, there's all kinds of assumptions that we certainly would not want to project. I would argue we certainly don't want to project on the Trinity. For example, when we talk about, you know, you and I sitting here, we have a relationship well, it could be very dangerous to assume the persons of the Trinity just have relationships as if what defines them is uh, separate wills in which they get along or have uh, similarities or maybe they like the same thing or, you know, the list just goes on and on. Hmm. In other words, this 20th, 20th century redefinition of person, I think, completely redefines the Trinity. Uh, critics have argued that certain forms of social Trinitarianism then uh, come dangerously close, if not altogether, uh, succumb to tritheism. Hmm. And, and you can see the reason for that, because if a person is just defined in terms of relationships in a very social manner like that, or different or distinct wills or conscious uh, centers of consciousness, well, it's very hard to explain how tritheism uh, is, doesn't just walk into the room at that point. Hmm. All that to say, I think that we are on better ground by going back to the fathers who were careful uh, as they looked at Scripture. You think, for example, of the way Hebrews and Psalms 2 uh, seems to indicate these uh, a plurality of persons in the way that they're speaking to one another. But at the same time, the fathers were careful in their exegesis to recognize that, well, if we are talking about a plurality of persons, this is not like a human society. Mm. Um, this is God, after all. And he has um, Father, Son, and Spirit. They, um, these are persons, yes, but they are subsistences of the same essence. Mm. And uh, this is where, when we define the Trinity, it's so crucial then not to set one over against the other. This has been the tendency. Um, some have looked back and said, well, we need to go with uh, this tendency to, to prioritize persons over essence, hmm. and um, hmm. there's a bit of a caricature at that point. Right. No, we don't want to do that. Uh, rather, as I mentioned, we need to stick with that traditional vocabulary that's been tested through time that ensures that the simplicity of, of the Trinity is not violated at hmm. that point. Hmm. So all that to say, rather than def kind of redefining the Trinity in terms of social categories, I think it's best to stick with, with that um, metaphysical language that ensures both divine simplicity and, as, as we can talk about later, uh, the equality of each person's because they have this same simple essence. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about that um, in, in due time for us to, to spend some time talking about, well, um, you know, if we shouldn't think about the relation of these persons in terms of our human society projecting it back up onto God, how should we think about how they relate to one another? Um, but you mentioned tritheism in, in, that, um, in, in your answer to my question, um, which is, of course, uh, a form of a Trinitarian heresy. And um, the, if what we're trying to, to avoid in terms of outcome is... Um, at worst, a bunch of Trinitarian heresies. What are some examples of uh, Trinitarian heresies that we want to avoid and that you think the doctrine of divine simplicity can help us to avoid? 
Yes, well, tritheism certainly is one of them. Um, and here I should clarify, it's not as if, well, we just we just look at the Trinity and find some way to you know see if it's compatible with simplicity. I argue something much stronger. Actually, it's only because our triune God is simple. Well, it's only because of that then that we even can then talk about a God who is simultaneously triune. Uh, it avoids tritheism uh, on many levels. Uh, tritheism, the belief that uh, there are three gods. Of course, no one is setting out, you know, to say I- I'm going to become a tritheist. <laughs> uh, more often than not, something. Uh, more accidental, uh, but uh, st- still very serious. What we're saying is that the one divine essence, because of divine simplicity, the one divine essence is not multiplied three times. Mm. Uh, that would be triplicity right. rather than trinity. And, of course, triplicity of any kind would would lead to tritheism. Um Triplicity is not the same thing as, as calling God Trinity. Triplicity divides the essence, making each person an individual agent, for example. I think that the great tr- tradition had a, a fantastic way of avoiding this mistake. Uh, for example, they, they like to stress that the one simple essence uh, has three modes of subsistence. In other words, rather than merely saying God is three persons, we can be more specific. The one undivided essence wholly subsists in three persons, each person a subsistence of the same, um, the very same simple essence. I I can't help but quote that uh, Reformed uh, Baptist uh, theologian John Gill. Mm. Uh, He had a, a great way of saying it. He said, there is but one divine essence, undivided and common to Father, Son, and Spirit. And in this sense, but one God. Since there is but one essence, though there are different modes of subsisting in it, which are called persons, and these possess the whole essence undivided. You can see there what he's after. Um, When we talk about uh, simplicity, we're not saying, for example, that, uh, well, uh, the Trinity, this, or, or when we talk about modes of subsistence, we're not saying, well, these are somehow impersonal modes of subsistence, uh, that would that would be something more along the lines of Sabellianism. Mm, mm. Uh, rather, we, we're actually referring to persons here. So these are personal modes of subsistence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So a little footnote there, not to confuse those two. Mm. Or take a different Trinitarian heresy like, uh, well, Sabellianism, for example. Uh, sometimes it's, it's called modalism, though Sabellianism may be uh, a, a bit more uh, his, a historical label for it. For Sabellianism, God is uh, not three persons. He's one person who maybe changes or morphs or or uh, transforms into three different forms of hmm. some kind. Hmm. Um, a, a popular way of explaining this might be, you know, the one God wears three masks, for hmm. example. Sometimes he puts on his mask called Father, other times called Son, and then other times Holy Spirit. And uh, this way of describing God, well, it's not describing this God as three distinct persons, but it transitions into impersonal modes. Hmm. And you don't have a trinity at this point. Now, simplicity guards us from this as well, uh, because when we affirm that there are modes of subsistence, paternity, filiation, spiration, those are them, 
we do not mean three impersonal modes um, or or subsist uh, three impersonal modes of subsistence. Rather, we are referring to something um, personal. Um, in other words, the one essence is not manifested manifested in like three different ways. Right. Like at one point in history, God decides I'm gonna I'm gonna show up as a father at this point, and then He's gonna change and become a Holy Spirit at another point. Mm. Rather, the one essence eternally wholly subsists in three undivided, that word's so key, right? Undivided yet distinct persons, each person being a subsistence of the one undivided essence. So I, that's, it, that's where I think John Gill's language here, and of course Gill was a very much a patristic um, scholar in his own right. Hmm. He is uh, trying to describe what's happening in Scripture, but in a way that does not compromise uh, the simplicity of the Trinity. Yeah, yeah, no, so helpful. I'm glad you mentioned John Gill. I would say he would, he was probably the um, biggest surprise contribution um, in your book. I was just unfamiliar with him um, sort of before, and was uh, pleasantly surprised with with uh, what I found in your book. At and, one point, I had to uh, as I was going through the editing process. It I realized. I quote John Gill too much. <laughs> <laughs> too much John Gill. <laughs> so I had to I had to take out. Uh, he he was protesting, but I had to take him out at a couple of points because he was just uh, taking over. <laughs> so I, I guess that's a good thing. You're gonna put him as a co-author or something. <laughs> um, no, that's that's uh, yeah, that's really helpful. And and even just um, you know, as you were um, talking about th- that, these um, modes of subsistence are not impersonal. They they are personal but they're not personal in the way that we think of persons. Mm. And uh, it just struck me, you know, it reminded me of, of sort of how you begun your last book, None Greater, with um, talking about the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility and recognizing the relationship between, um, between God as uh, sort of the, the standard or the archetype and we are the ectype. And um, so there's a real analogical relationship that's happening between persons and um, modes of personal modes of subsistence, but it's not univocal. It's not, there's not a one-to-one correlation. And um, I think maintaining that distance between the creator and the creature is really helpful. Mm. Um, So shifting focus then, um, chapter six, you know, we're getting now into how the persons of the Trinity do relate to one another. Um, so we spent a lot of time of talking about how they don't relate to one another. And now um, this, this chapter sort of begins a section on the doctrine of eternal generation. Um, I was um, struck in my own, you know, as you know, in my, in my um, PhD research, I was struck uh, and shocked in much of the same way you were describing at the beginning of this podcast when I read um, some I mean, big evangelical names uh, the, who are, you know, part of um, the inheritors of this great Reformed tradition saying things like, uh, we can get rid of this doctrine, just flatly saying something like that. It's, it's of no value. So um, I, I like the, the tendency, the Chesterton tenden- tendency to say, before we tear down a fence, let's ask what it's for and, <laughs> um, and just press pause and say, okay, well, before we throw out this doctrine that so much of the tradition um, affirmed wholeheartedly, let's, let's actually talk about what it is. So how would you answer that question? What is the doctrine of eternal generation? Yes, well, it's, it's 
I mean, what question could be so important, right, when we're talking about uh, the persons of the Trinity? You know, previously we've been defining and explaining divine simplicity just briefly. But as we then ask, well, uh, what, is it, what does it look like? Uh, what, what is it exactly that distinguishes Father, Son, and Spirit? Um, here, eternal generation, when we're talking about the Father and the Son, um, this becomes the distinction uh, that, distinct, that, that uh, helps us understand, well, what does it mean for the Son to be a Son? Uh, if I could just put it briefly, and of course, this we have to say at the beginning, right, this is a mystery to us. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned analogical language, how key it is to keep that in mind, because um, I think one of the reasons why uh, so many scholars have just, you know, thrown out the doctrine of eternal generation, or at the very least were suspicious of it, is because they failed, they, they would approach either the text or theology itself in a way that, um, well, there was no room for, for this concept of, of analogical thought. Yeah. And so uh, some would say, well, I just don't see a, a proof text for it. Right. Others would yeah. say, well, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Hmm. Uh, it's a contradiction. How can something be eternal and something be generated? Uh, obviously, that's, that's fallacious, so uh, we have to describe the Trinity in, in a very different way. Uh, but uh, I think there's very, very good reasons why that the majority of the classic, the well, the church, but of course the patristic, medieval, Reformation, post-Reformation tradition um, stood by this doctrine of eternal generation was because they not only thought it was uh, found in the canon of Scripture, but they believed it was actually uh, the very the very distinction that told us what it means for the son to be a son and the father to be a father. So, you know, to put it in a nutshell, eternal generation means then from all eternity, the father communicates the one simple and undivided, there's that word again, mm. <laughs> undivided divine essence to the son. Or if we want to use uh, John's language, the son is eternally begotten mm. from, from the father. And so, uh, as we talked about in the last episode of the podcast, uh, these uh, eternal relations of origin, as we call them, or modes of subsistence, uh, these alone distinguish the persons. There's not some other thing or things out there that distinguish the persons. No, this is the way Scripture distinguishes the persons. The Father is unbegotten from eternity. The Son is the only begotten Son from the Father's essence, from all eternity, and then, of course, we, we go to the Holy Spirit who proceeds from, from the Father and the Son from all eternity um, as well. And so uh, there's a lot more we could say, but that's how I would at least define it out of the gate. Hmm. Okay, yeah. And I, I like how in your book you, you engage in both positive and negative theology. You know, you say um, positively, uh, you describe a doctrine by saying positively what it is, but also negatively, you describe a doctrine by describing what it's not. And um, in a bit of a, a cheeky reference to um, Mark Dever and, and Nine Marks Ministry, you list nine marks of an unhealthy generation. You caught on and, to that, huh? Yeah. So why don't you share a little <laughs> bit about, um, you know, what these are and yeah. why we should avoid them like they are the plague? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, speaking of, you know, pandemics and uh, COVID, uh, <laughs> maybe this is something we can relate to. I, I think the, the father's... Uh, 
from Gregory to you know someone like even John Gill later on, they would they would appreciate that metaphor. Hmm. Um, there's there's probably more we could list, but in my book, I list uh, nine marks nine marks of an unhealthy generation. And of course, here I'm referring to uh, the son's generation from the father. I'll just list them here, but and then maybe we can talk about one or two of them. Uh, number one. Uh, so these are nine marks of an unhealthy generation. Number one, a division of nature. Hmm. Number two, multiplication of essence. Some of these we've we've kind of touched on a little bit. Number three, priority or uh, posteriority. Number four, motion. or And number five, mutation. Six, which this follows from the others, right? Alteration. And seven, corruption. Uh, eight, anything that would lessen. Uh, anything that would lessen, uh, say, the Son or the Holy Spirit, we could even apply this to spiration in the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And then nine, cessation from operation. Now, I know those are a bit textbookish right. and um, can can feel a bit clinical, but what these nine, and there's probably others we could list, but what these nine are trying to get at is, well, this is what eternal generation is not. So right. notice how we're even phrasing that. We're trying to respect the mystery of the Trinity. We're trying to make sure that we are affirming something true about eternal generation, but at the same time, uh, we're not—this was really the problem in the fourth century with Arius. We're not understanding eternal generation in a human sense, um, Mm. just losing any sense of analogical language. Um, Rather, we're going to Scripture and we're saying, okay, this is what it means for the Son to be called, well, a son. It's almost too simple to say, actually. Um, each of these are, are so crucial, and I spend, I don't touch on all of them, but I spend a good time in my book touching on a, a number of them uh, for if I could just pick one of them and uh, maybe we could talk about it, flesh it out a little bit. I would say one of the most important is uh, that one that says there's no priority, there's no posteriority, and and there's no inferiority. Mm. Uh, this means then that the son's generation, and it, it's not something, you know, if someone were to ask, well, okay, you've defined eternal generation, well, when, when, when does it happen? Hmm. The, the question itself is a trick question. Well, right. it should be at least, right? Mm-hmm. Because there is no when. Um, this is, this is eternal. Um, this is, this is timeless. Um, there, there was no beginning or as, you know, the fathers like to say there, um, Athanasius and others, there was never a time when the son was not. Well, the reason is because the Son is begotten from the Father's essence um, from all eternity. And, well, there's a lot of implications here. Um, It means there's no before, there's no after. It also means that when we talk about eternal generation, we shouldn't assume that, well, since the Son is from the Father, that's what it means to be a Son after all, that therefore he must be less in some way. He must be less. He must be subordinate in some way within the imminent trinity. No, that would actually dispense with um, our analogical understanding and would actually start defining eternal, defining generation and begottenness in terms of our human experience rather than remembering that this is, this is God we are talking about. Mm. Um, perhaps we could put it this way. When we're talking about the Father, he is referred to as the principle in the Godhead, uh, the principle who alone is without principle. He's unbegotten. But that doesn't mean that the Father and Son are, are, are not co-equals. Instead, 
the eternal, these eternal relations, like eternal generation, reveal, well, it reveals their personal origins. Uh, in other words, if we read hierarchy of any kind into these origins, well, we, we, we abuse them. We even manipulate them. And at that point, then we start introducing um, concepts that would only be true in a human generation, like there's some, some type of priority or some type of hierarchy. There's some type of before. There's some type of after. Um, all this to say, when we refer to the Trinity, hierarchy, priority, these are precluded uh, by the very nature, the very will, power, glory that the three persons have in common. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just mention uh, Gregory of Nazianzus again. I can't help but, but quote him. Mm where he says, they do not have degrees of being God or degrees of priority over against one another. They are not sundered in will or divided in power. You cannot find there any of the properties inherent in things divisible. In short, the Godhead exists undivided. Hmm. You can see where John Gill is, is getting some of his language from. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. And I think even framing it that way is helpful to remember a, a big purpose for what theology is for. Um, this is a, um, something that I come into contact with a lot with my students is uh, people can assume that the point of theology is for um, comprehending or um, explaining um, the Trinity or explaining these deep, deep mysteries where um, we want to be uh, careful not to not to be so desperate to explain something because we might find that we've actually explained something away. Yeah. We've done that. And what yeah. we're really looking for is language that um, befits our God talk, mm. you know, language that doesn't dishonor, um, dishonor God and that brings the devotional element, um, which I wanted to ask you about that before, before I do that, I just have a couple more questions. We, we have to talk about this, this um, term um, you know, in light of eternal generation, we have to talk about this word for, um, for the begotten, the only begotten one, mm -hmm. this, this Greek word monogeneus. It, it seems to me like a lot of evangelical scholarship, a lot of evangelical doctrine, uh, conversation about this doctrine is surrounded um, around this one particular word, a lot of word studies on this one um, word. And in your book, you do spend a considerable amount of time on that one particular word, and I think you defend a classical sort of articulation of it um, really well. And yet, it seems that that you're kind of wondering why it is we're spending all of this time talking about this one particular word, when in fact we have this mosaic of yeah. scripture passages that teach the doctrine of eternal generation. And so, you know, on that note, um, what, where else can we find the doctrine of the Trinity? If, if, you know, maybe we're undecided about this one Greek word, well, what do we do th there? I mean, are we done with the doctrine at that point or where else can we go? Yeah, it's a very good question. And, and you're right. Um, this is, this is, a, it rev it's so revealing, I think, because when I told my story a little bit, how when I first started out, um, sir, you know, systematic theology sometimes would throw out eternal generation uh, because they looked at, say, this one word uh, in John's gospel and said, well, uh, I don't think that we can sh show that that means begotten. And based on that, they then dispense with the doctrine as a whole. Hmm. Uh, even more recently, right, um, you take, you know, 
uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, his second edition, in which he now affirms eternal generation. But if you look at the reason why, uh, his methodology hasn't really changed in the end. Instead, he's gone back and said, okay, well, I now think that this word can actually include this concept of uh, begetting, generating, and he, you know, he gives, as, as I think he should, he um, gives a lot of credit to Charles Lee Irons, his chapter uh, in that book by uh, Scott Swain and Fred Sanders, he, uh, Retrieving Eternal Generation. Uh, Charles Lee Irons does a fantastic job there defending the traditional use of the word. But what I want to point out is um, notice the methodology. Uh, Grudem really hasn't, he hasn't left that methodology still. He's still going to hang his doctrine of eternal generation based on a word study. I think uh, that's a colossal mistake. Uh, not only is that not a, uh, a very holistic or organic or comprehensive way of approaching theology, it tends to be very biblicist in nature, um, just looking to a proof text or a word study. Uh, but uh, beyond that, it actually ignores the whole testimony of Scripture, and, and not just certain texts, but I would say the way that the Trinity is even revealed to us from uh, Genesis to Revelation. Um, so all that to say, when let's let's we'll just dip into this a little bit, but let's take uh, eternal generation for example, as I've hinted at already. We, we see eternal generation uh, assumed in the very names that God chooses to give us. Why is it that the Father is called Father and the Son is called Son? Um, this is sometimes ignored. I mean, we say it so much we often don't ever think about it, but it, assume, it assumes the concept of eternal generation. And I think this is why ultimately uh, the Gospel of John, as well as his first epistle, is building on this concept to actually take us back into the imminent life of God and identify who this son is from eternity. Hmm. And for John, that means calling him son hmm. and calling the father, father. So the names uh, are so significant. Also, the very, uh, the very way that revelation is given to us, and I would say uh, the gospel itself. Why is it, for example, when we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the way that Jesus, be, when we look at his incarnation, the way that he then um, becomes incarnate and begins his, his, uh, his teachings and his kingdom and, and uh, his redemptive work, why is it that the Son becomes incarnate? Well, it's fitting that the Son become incarnate because in history, because the Son is begotten from the Father from all eternity. And likewise, we could apply that same pattern to the Holy Spirit. Why is it that the Spirit is sent at Pentecost, at this climactic moment after the resurrection and ascension? Well, it's because the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. But you mentioned that word mosaic, and I think that's a key word because it, I, I use that in my book because um, it's not just these two pillars, but really a whole nother pillar that shows us how eternal generation actually appears across the, the canon of Scripture. Uh, just to give a couple of examples, and, and maybe listeners want to, you know, uh, go and, and study some of these. Uh, you think, for example, of radiance language in Hebrews chapter 1, how it refers to the Son as the radiance 
and, and then goes on to uh, quote uh, a passage like Psalm 2-7, which refers to uh, the father speaking to his son as his begotten one. Uh, you think, for example, of another uh, key a New Testament passage like Colossians 1, in which it, ref- it actually refers to the Son as the very image of the invisible God. And mm. the way pa- Paul sees that language uh, as crucial for understanding the Son's identity from all eternity. Or, uh, and this really will uh, maybe stretch us some, the way that uh, Proverbs 8 all the way to John 1 use these concepts of wisdom and word to refer to the Son, uh, that there never was a time when when God was without his wisdom. There never was a time when the Father was without his word. And uh, other uh, authors have pointed to um, an Old Testament passage like Micah chapter 5, and the way that this passage is then picked up uh, in the Gospels, uh, the way that Micah refers to the ancient of days and how this title then uh, then reflects who this son is as the very ancient of days himself and where his origin, his, his Trinitarian origin must come from. All that to say, I mean, we don't have time to explore each of those. I, I get into each of them in the book so listeners can go and, and work through those passages themselves. But it's not just individual passages. It's not just even Scripture as a whole. It's not even just the, the way that God has revealed his triune identity, but it's also the very names, the, the, very, um, the very warp and woof of his revelation. Hmm. And it's, that, I think, is, is far more instructive and really forms a mosaic than, say, just a word study or a particular proof text. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so helpful. Um, I think maybe we can end here. Uh, you know, as I... Um, as a pastor, one of the things that I'm kind of always um, forced to come back to is um, the the pastoral payoff um, with uh, what it is that I'm proposing. And I find that when I, um, the more I, I press people into um, into these kinds of doctrines, and I'm I'm advocating for theological contemplation, um, what what. The, the inevitable response is, okay, but what does that have to do with the gospel? You know, mm-hmm. can't we just be a gospel-centered people? Let's stick to the basics and just be gospel-centered, the gospel and nothing else. And so I guess um, uh, one way to address that that sort of perspective is just to ask the question, um, does eternal generation have any significance on um, the gospel? Does it impact the way that we think about um, the gospel, and even our salvation. Yeah. Well, uh, two things I would say here, because I've gotten that question a lot in the past as well, and I think uh, if if a pastor is, you know, teaching his people, uh, any pastor out there is bound to get that question. The first thing I like to say to someone is, listen, um, yes, we love the gospel. Yes, we want to be gospel people. We want to be gospel-centered, et cetera, et cetera. However, uh, be careful here because um, you could be in danger of uh, so basing what matters uh, on what you experience or what you receive or how you're going to be blessed 
that you start to ignore or discard uh, the deep things of God that actually are important regardless of whether you like them or not. <laughs> mm, right. um, in other words, it used to be the case that, and you see this with the, the pastoral motivation of so many of the, the church fathers, it used to be the case that as they talked to their, um, their church members, they often gave them the impression, if they didn't say it explicitly, they assumed this much, that contemplating God in and of itself is worth your life. That itself has everything to do uh, with why you exist, with your sanctification. And, uh, well, I would put it this way. If if that uh, doesn't interest you, I think that you're going to have a very hard time in heaven one day. (laughs) But uh, to the, the second part, uh, the, you know, the flip side of this coin um, is I do want to say to, to um, you know, the churchgoer, and, and I hope pastors will really hear me out at this point, I, I do want to say to them, listen, God is Trinity uh, regardless, regardless of, of whether he ever chose to redeem you, um, regardless of whether he ever chose to save anyone, he is Trinity in eternity aside from the, the world being created. So we don't want to make God dependent on us. Uh, that would violate his simplicity. At the same time, though, I think we can say, um, based on the way that Scripture reveals the Trinity to us through and in the gospel, that, uh, well, the gospel itself sure, certainly says volumes about the, the glory and magnificence and blessedness of this triune God. So let's just go back to eternal generation for a second uh, and think about this. Um, If the Son is uh, not uh, eternally begotten from the Father, then there there really isn't a basis uh, on which the Father then sends his Son into the world to save sinners like you and me. Mm. Uh, In other words, only one who is God himself, begotten from the very essence of the Father, is qualified, let alone capable, of saving a fallen humanity. Hmm. Or uh, think, you know, we're here, we're talking, you know, 10,000 feet, but let's bring it down to something specific like our adoption into the family of God. Um, It's only if uh, the Son is a Son by nature that we then um, can become sons by grace. Hmm. In other words, our adoption by grace... um, presupposes and is contingent upon the very identity of the Son from eternity. Yeah, and that matters. Well, um, we've been talking to Dr. Matthew Barrett about his new book, Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, recently published with Baker. Um, Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for talking about your book. Absolutely. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.